Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. I'm going to read the text as we work through it today because it's a little lengthier and for time I'm just going to read through it as we go. But I want you to hear me as I try to lay a foundation for where we're going today. Life at times can feel empty. I I think you probably know what I mean. Sometimes in the sense of routine and rhythm and order and day in and day out, we often find ourselves stopping and saying, Is there something more? Is there something else? Life often feels that way because in God's image and in being image bearers, you and I long for newness, fullness, and completeness. We long for that. We long for thrill and enjoyment and gratification. But the whole time, what we're expressing is what it means to be an image bearer. You see, as image bearers, we are to find all that in God. That was the intention from the very beginning. And so the longings that we feel of newness and fullness and completement and thrill and enjoyment, these are holy longings given to us by our Creator because we want to be full and whole. What can be dangerous, though, about that is that we create, and the world around us creates, placebos that make us think we're full, but we're actually being fooled. All right, you tracking with me so far? They aren't always meant to be deceitful. Sometimes they're even good-intentioned. And throughout church history, some of those placebos are often presented in what we would call false teaching. False teaching is often accepted and false teachers are often believed and the negative effect of that is felt eventually by a Christian and by Christians and unbelievers around them. Now, these false teachers, what's interesting about them is false teachers never unite believers. They never unite believers. False teachers always have divisiveness attached because what it does eventually is it makes the body of Christ, so to speak, it makes the group to be an angry, tense, judgmental gathering. But we know that Jesus doesn't do that to us. Jesus doesn't make us this way. He lovingly invites us into fellowship. And the fellowship and the community that is given to us as centered on Christ is very liberating and freeing. Now you say, why do I say all that? Well, as Paul writes Colossians 2 in the latter part here, his goal is to both save, and I don't mean save in a salvific way, but I mean save as in maintain Christians from false teaching and at the same time he's trying to keep the body of Christ unified. 
What he basically tells them in this passage is that the false teaching is empty. It's a, it's a placebo. It sounds right, but, and it looks fulfilling, but it's very fooling. And so in our longingness often to find fullness and wholeness in people's longing is they often find themselves attracted to a teaching that gives them the sense of wholeness, but it's deceitful. It gives them the sense of spirituality, but it's empty. It fools us into believing. False teaching fools us into believing something that sounds and looks like the real thing. That's why I call it a placebo. But in some way, it ultimately forces us to place our confidence and our hope in something or someone who can never give what they're promising. I told you last week that chapter 2 had some warnings in it. And here are some of the warnings today. I'm going to work hard to make this understandable for you, but there truly is a lot of depth here that without, without weeks, I just can't break all of it down to context. But in this passage, we find Paul warning about three realms of religious teachings. What we don't know is if these three realms are all united in one movement in Colossae. We don't know that. Or whether it's three different realms or three different religious sets of teachings. We don't really know. But what we do know is that Paul warns them and around the warning, he explains why he's warning them. So, with a little more academic rigor to the Word of God today, with a little more teaching here and a little more doctrine, I want us to engage and dive into the text and ask the Spirit to help us. So the first warning I want you to see is found in verse 16 and 17. And I'm simply calling it the warning of legalism. The warning of legalism. I want you to see what Paul says here in verse 16 and 17. He says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come but the body is of Christ. Now there's an important linking word there. And maybe you saw it in verse 16. It's the word therefore. Therefore, the, the Christian reading the Bible gets to the word therefore and says this. And asks this, what is therefore, therefore? It's an, a linking word back to what we've already studied about the completeness in Christ. If we are complete in Christ... Therefore, we have to heed the warning of legalism. Now these warnings are meant to keep us from going to these teachings for fullness. That's one of the most important statements I make today. The warnings in the passage are warning us from going to these teachings for fullness. And here's the warning. He says, let no man therefore judge you. Let no man therefore judge you. Now this is not a nobody can judge me, who are you to judge me type of a statement. That's not what Paul's saying. The point of this judgment is that somebody in Colossae is trying to disapprove of Christians by the areas that Paul has spoken of here. Now what are these areas? He lists them. 
meat, drink, holy days, new moons, Sabbath days. The best way to see this judgment that's being passed is that they're judging them in food, drink, and religious days. Food, drink, and religious days. And Paul is saying, let no man judge you on these matters. Now, what we understand right off the bat is that Paul seems to be directing this and recognizing these judgments as being very Jewish. There were, these were Jewish legalists who were doing this, who were bringing this judgment. And they don't seem to be a part of a group that is separated from the church. It seems to be that they're linked to these believers. They're either in the churches at Colossae, or they're very connected to the church in some fashion, because the believers were connected to the Jewish congregants in the city. Whatever it was, there was a connection here. It was actually happening in the church. Interesting, since the same thing in some form or fashion was happening in the Roman church. Paul references in Romans chapter 14, he references the strong and weak brothers and sisters in this context. Notice in Romans chapter 14, a very important passage on, on Christians' judgment of one another. It says this in verse 2, For one believeth that he may eat all things. Again, a Jewish context. Another who is weak eateth herbs. Doesn't mean he can't eat meat. It means that there's a weakness as far as his view of what he's allowed to eat. Verse 3 says, Let no man that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant to his own master? He standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holded up. For God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day. There's the religious days. One day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Now, I would love to take time today and I'd love to really teach through Romans 14. But I want to get us back to the immediate context of, of, of Colossians. There was judgment happening around these believers regarding their diet and days. Diet and days. Let's be honest though. Let's be honest again. I told you a little teachy, so stay with me. Neither Romans or Colossians tell us exactly who the source is of this kind of judgment. We don't have a name. We don't have a church name. We don't have a body of people. We don't know. But it seems to be happening that these judgments are being passed. We also don't know, listen very carefully, we also don't know what kind of food or drink Paul is referring to. We don't really even know what the teachers are condemning. It does appear that Paul could possibly, in Romans 14 specifically, be talking about meat and wine, but one cannot be fully certain. But the clear implication is that some sort of Jewish regulation on diet and days is being put on these believers. And the judgment is one, hear me, because the entire book is about spiritual maturity. The judgment is on saying, this one is mature, this one is not. This one is right with God, this one is not. This one is walking in step with God, this one is not. Because of their observance of diet and days. What we can be sure of though is this. 
Paul is absolutely talking about teaching that teaching that says that you can judge a spiritual condition based on the observance of one's diet, what they eat, drink, and days. One could not, hear me, one could not gain spiritual fullness or completeness by returning to Old Testament dietary and days restrictions. One could not. When Jesus came, all those dietary restrictions were fulfilled. Mark chapter 7, verse 18 says, And he saith unto them, Who are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats, and he said, that which cometh out of the man, that, defile, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. Now listen very carefully. Listen. The dietary restrictions of the Jews could not bring a man closer to God. Only Jesus can. First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, Paul says it like this. But meat commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. Listen very carefully. This is not to say that a Christian should not be mindful and wise about what, what he or she eats and drinks. I'm not a fitness expert up here either, okay? Or a, somebody who gives diet information. It is not to say that certain days are not important, such as the Lord's Day or as the celebration of the resurrection. But in Colossae, the Jewish context, in a Jewish context, the Old Testament regulation of, of days and diets were not to bear out on a New Testament church. Okay? You and I are New Testament Christians. We can either take or not take the Jewish ceremonial observations and regulations. We can take or not take. But we cannot command them on others. When we do so, we are demanding on them to find fullness from that which never made a Jew full or whole. And in so doing... We are being legalistic. We may not take what has been commanded to the Jew in a ceremonial way. I'm not talking about a moral way. I'm talking about a ceremonial way and put that on New Testament Christians because we are not under that covenant and under, under, under that expectation. We are under the new covenant of walking in newness with Christ. It may be necessary for some to eat differently and drink differently and celebrate days differently under the new covenant. But a Christian is not to condemn or commend another believer's spiritual life based on what they do and don't do in accordance with that ceremonial law. I told you it needs more than one sermon. Now appropriate to this discussion is our understanding of the dangers of legalism. It's a word thrown out quickly, but let me just say what legalism 
does. All right, listen. Legalism is joyless. Legalism is joyless. Joyless because legalism is driven by the do-nots and not by the done. Legalism is driven by the do-nots and not by the done. That was what was going on. Don't eat this. Don't do that. you got to do this. You can't do that. That's what Paul is commending. He's saying legalism focuses on the do-nots. And Christianity in Western days, Western times, has become a do-not kind of legalism instead of the freedom of I am now new in Christ and I am complete in Christ and so I can either take that or not take that. I don't need that to complete me and I don't have to abstain from that so that I stay complete. It is Jesus who completes me. That's the big picture view of a danger of legalism. Number two, not only is legalism joyless, legalism demands uniformity. It demands uniformity. This is where everyone looks the same, sounds the same, they dress the same, they talk the same, they sing the same. Everything is all the same. Because legalism demands you got to do this the way I think you got to do it. Instead of the freedom in which we do it in the way that Christ empowers us to do it. See, the gospel brings unity amongst diversity. Legalism demands uniformity. Demands uniformity. Around, listen, not around the truth, but around extra. Side stuff. Number three, regarding legalism. Legalism creates a surface faith. It's surface because it's based off things that are not that important. And it neglects what is vital. It is so outward driven that it never focuses on the doctrine that transforms on the inside. And so, so all we can do is create people who look the right way, but they have no basic understanding of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Because we're so consumed with the outside. What are you eating? What are you drinking? What are you observing? Let me be clear. Let me be very clear. Paul does not criticize Judaism. Listen very carefully. Paul does not criticize Judaism. You know why? Because the Christian faith fulfills Judaism. Paul's goal in this is not to criticize Judaism. Paul's not mad at Jews. Paul is a Jew. Paul's saying that stuff does not bring wholeness and completeness. Jesus does. And that's why, by the way, that's why he goes on. Are you with me? In verse 17, John is. In verse 17, that's why he says, these things are a shadow of the substance. Do you notice that in verse 17? He doesn't condemn these, excuse me, not in verse 17, in verse 20, where are we here? Um, Lost my place. There I am. Verse 17, he says, which are a shadow of things to come. All those that we're judging in. But listen, but the body is of Christ. The shadow is not who I am. It's a symbol of the body of who I am. Once the body is present, there is no need for a preoccupation with the shadows. Christ is that body, Paul said. Christ is the body. 
He is the substance. And so we want to be, as Christians, preoccupied with the body that is Christ, and we want to hold loosely to the shadows. You following me? I'm concerned. All right. Regarding dietary restrictions, Jesus is the bread of life. He's the living water. Regarding holy days, Christ is our Passover lamb. He is our Sabbath rest. You see, Christ is the body. And as Christians, my only encouragement is you want to hold, if you want to hold to strong convictions around matters that I've already mentioned or have implicitly being in, or have been implied, if you want to hold that, that's fine. As long as we make the substance of Jesus central and hold loosely to the shadows. So here's the truth in the warning. To summarize the warning in the direction, Paul says this. The internal relationship with Christ drives the external life of believers. The internal relationship with Christ drives the external life of believers. And so we focus and we're preoccupied with the body and we hold loosely to the shadows. All right, good. I think we're surviving number one. Number two. Second warning is the warning of mysticism. Mysticism. Told you, you need that extra hour of sleep. Look at verse 18. Paul says, let no man beguile you. Here's the second warning. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he had not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. What is Paul saying here? Well, a couple of verses earlier, Paul told them not to judge. Now he says, let no man beguile you. The, the idea of beguiling is not really that of deceiving. The idea of beguiling here is of one who is making an unfair judicial decision. An unfair judicial It would be like, if you will... It would be like um, a referee in Paul's day in the Grecian games and think Olympics withholding a reward that was deserved. So there's an award that's deserved, but the reward's not being given. It's being withheld. Paul's telling them here not to let anyone bring a judgment against them regarding their reward of union and completeness with Christ. That's the whole picture later on in verse number 19 of, of the head and the body and the joints and the bands. That's the picture of union with Christ. And the point is, don't let anybody rob you of the reward that's already yours. And here's how they're going to rob you. They take the joy of Christ and submitting to His work to be taken from us in this life. Now they can't take our salvation we can't lose our salvation but we lose the practical enjoyment of what it means to be united with Christ the joy of the Christian experience in Christ and it gets robbed from us hear me by subjective religious experiences now we say of subjective uh, I'm, I'm thinking that we understand the difference in subjective and objective subjective is it's what I think and what I feel. There's no external basis for it. Objective is there's an external basis for this belief. So subjective is this is what I feel. 
And what Paul says here is that these people, this false teaching has a voluntary humility. It simply means it's a humility that was the exact opposite. And here, don't, listen, don't, miss, don't miss this. It was absolutely seen in an extreme form of fasting. They would fast and so they looked so weak and so de- depleted that they were actually just wanting attention. It was a false humility. It was actually very prideful. On top of that, they were worshiping angels. I don't know what that looked like. They ascribed some kind of veneration to angels. Now, some people believe that because the law was given by angels, that these were Jews that were venerating angels. Regardless, this false teaching was creating angels as possible mediators between them and God. According to church history, the region around Colossae had an issue with cults worshiping angels. All the way back to the middle of the 8th century. In the middle of the 8th century, people were documenting a group that ascribed Michael the archangel as being credited for healing people. They were worshiping Michael the archangel. Now, let me just stop here and let me maybe unsettle you a little bit and you can yell at me later for it. But there's not a consistent biblical teaching for guardian angels. Can't find it. We have to be careful. We have to be careful for finding security in created beings. Because what we find security in inevitably gets a form of worship. Go study your Bible about guardian angels. It's an extra-biblical, mythological teaching that has crept into the church. Jesus said in Matthew 4 to Satan, It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. He continued to describe, Paul does, these religious mystics. He says that their teaching is based on, their teaching is based on visions and dreams and personal experiences. I've seen that around me, and so have you. People base their entire religious understanding and biblical understanding by visions and dreams and subjective experiences. But the writer of Hebrew tells us that there's not a need for any new revelation. Because he tells us that in Hebrews chapter 1, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. There is no need for new revelation. And this is where people try to come to subjective truths from experience. Well, I just feel like God is not concerned with what you feel is true. God is concerned with what He has revealed to be true. And when we come to subjective truths by some form of imaginary ideas, hear me, we pull away from the sufficiency of our union with Christ. We pull away from it. That's the danger. The danger is Christ is sufficient. Christ is revealed. Christ is enough. We don't need visions to improve on that. Help me out if you can with phones, please. We don't need Christ. We don't need a vision. And hear me, we don't need an angel to improve on our view of Christ. Christ. 
so, this belief system was false. And I might add, it's not only apparent in Islam and Mormonism, it's apparent in New Age mysticism, and it has pushed its way into the church. And here's how. A person gets puffed up in their fleshly mind by some kind of feeling over gospel truth. And this is not what Christ does. This is not what Christ does. If you notice there, if you notice there, worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, visions, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. They're so prideful about what they feel and think is right and their truth and their ideas of what is true that they neglect the sufficiency of the gospel. No false humility, no fasting, no abusing of your body, no worshiping angels, no seeing visions, no having private interpretation. That is not what grows Christians. But listen, I have to hurry. Friends, we need to understand that there's often a tendency, there's often a tendency to move from the truth of Christ to experience. Hear me. We even have have created an idol of revivalism, emotionalism in our society that has made that more important than the daily revival and renewal available in Christ. It's just emotionalism. We move from Jesus to feelings. From truth to experience. But only Christ is sufficient. And His Word is the truth. So the point of this in verse 19 is they're not holding the head. So in a positive sense, you and I should say, hold the head. Hold on to Christ. Cling to biblical revelation. Cling to the Word. Cling to Christ. Because it is the head that nourishes the body. And so it is Christ that grows believers. We're grabbing for things. Listen, we're grabbing at things that we cannot find fulfillment from. When your experience is gone, Christ is sufficient. When the emotion of a moment dies off, Christ is still sufficient. So we want to cling to Christ. And so here's the truth from the warning. As the head nourishes the body, so Christ grows believers. I told you it's not a, an easy passage. And I want you to notice number three, and I'm moving quickly. Bear with me. He says, wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? And here are the ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which, are, which all are to perish with the using. They all go away. You eat it and it's gone. You drink it and it's gone. After the commandments and doctrines of men. Why are you subject to ordinances after the commandments and doctrines of men? Which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will, worship and humility and neglecting the body not in any manner to the satisfying of the flesh. And I want to be super simple here. False teachers are trying to free their spirit from their body. They saw the body as being fundamentally bad and evil and wicked. But we know that's not the case because our own Savior took on a human body. So the body itself is not fundamentally bad. It is sin in the body that is condemned. So they were telling him, don't eat a lot. Don't eat. Don't drink. 
Don't enjoy the marital relationship. Don't enjoy the pleasure of, of this life. Be an ascetic. An ascetic lives a life of constant self-denial. i got to deny my flesh. i got to deny my flesh. i got to deny my body. I shouldn't eat. I shouldn't drink. I shouldn't enjoy this. I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't enjoy this life. They were trying to free their spirit from their bodies. Now, we might wrestle with how to apply that, but hear me. Paul's general point is you are free from these dead, rudimentary restrictions. So let me simply give you the truth of that portion. Believers are dead to empty ritualism and strict physical restrictions that cannot make us more spiritual. We're dead to those. We're dead to them. Now listen, let me quickly take you through some application. You and I hear a message like this, and we aren't really sure where it is present in the Christian world, but here's what we often find. Listen very carefully. We probably in our lifetime have experienced some form of legalism. We probably have witnessed mystical Christians who want to feel God but not read the Word. We probably have heard some folk talk about a rigorous lifestyle of self-denial and that if we do this, this will honor God. So let me, you say, well, how does all this apply to me? Let me give you, let me throw a couple darts at the wall and see if we get a bullseye somewhere. Number one, and in conclusion, we all wrestle with legalism in some way. We all wrestle with legalism in some way. It happens as we compare, judge, condemn, or disregard a brother or sister over something they do or don't do that isn't necessarily right or wrong according to Scripture. Legalistic tendencies pull us away from the power and work of Christ in our life and in the lives of other believers. So how do I know if this is happening? How do I know if I have a legalistic tendency? Let me ask you a couple questions. Are you letting, am I letting other Christians' actions or interactions frustrate me or rob me of joy? Am I letting their actions or interactions rob me of joy or frustrate me? In that moment, it's easy and right to say, am I being legalistic about this? Am I demanding other Christians do what I do the way I do it? Am I sensing myself making mountains out of Christian molehills? <laughs> May I be clear? Biblical obedience, though, is not legalism. And I absolutely expect you to condemn me and chastise me and correct me when I am biblically disobedient. That is not legalism. Legalism is when I take something that's not scripturally laid out and enforce it on another person. Number two. Number two, regarding mysticism, we are people with feelings. We are emotional beings. Feelings are not always an indicator of what is true. Let me say that again. Feelings are not always an indicator of what is true. Feelings are subjective. They're based on my internal standards. But God's word is objective. Based on God's standards. So we take comfort in, for instance, in God's spirit, not in angels protecting us. We take comfort in God's spirit and in God's word. Not in some kind of subjective reality. Number three. Listen very carefully. We are people who have, made, who have been made to eat, drink, and enjoy life. You say, I don't know about that, Pastor. Okay, look at Jesus. He was condemned for how he ate, drank, and enjoyed life. Didn't say he sinned. 
God doesn't demand, listen, God does not demand you abuse your body. You, we do not have an evil body and a good spirit. That's Gnosticism. That's false teaching. We have a body that is broken by sin. But our noble efforts, and our noble efforts of diet and exercise cannot make that body whole. We may be good stewards of our body, but our bodies are not to be worshipped. Nor are they to be detested. You with me? You're not to worship your body and how you eat and fitness it, okay? That's, don't worship your body, nor should you be detesting your body. The truth is, we know that our body is only whole when we receive that glorified body. So we live as good stewards of our body without worshiping it. You see, all of this is biblical truth that may be hard for us to hear. So where do we find biblical hope in it? I conclude with this. These warnings are meant to cause us to see error that detracts us from the gospel. And here's what it is. The gospel says legalism is futile because only Christ can make us holy. Only Christ can make us holy. The gospel says mysticism and spiritualism is empty because the truth of Christ and his word are the objective realities on which we should give our attention. Too many Christians worship the spirit world. Worship Christ. Worship Christ. He is the body. The gospel says, listen, the gospel says an ascetic life, right, of rigorous self-denial, an ascetic life is not necessary because Christ's own physical body was abused for us on the cross. So that you and I could be dead to sin and the effort to prove ourselves in our bodies to be spiritual and whole. Simply put, the gospel saves us from trusting in our rules, our feelings, and our lifestyle. You say, couldn't you have just told us that at the beginning and we could have gone home? There's your summary of the text. The gospel saves us from trusting in our rules, our feelings, and our lifestyle. We have one one that we look to, and that is Christ. Colossians 2 gave us the gospel. Everything else is a fraud. Everything else is a fraud. Colossians 2 told us this, Jesus is the wisdom and treasure of God. Jesus is the completer of mankind. Jesus is the one who brings us into the family. Jesus is the Savior who took our sins on the cross, buried the death, rose again, giving us new life in Him. Jesus is the substance of our faith. Everything else is a shadow. Jesus is the objective truth of God visible to us in the Word. Hear me. Jesus is the great liberator of religious ritualism. Colossians 2 tells us what the whole book tells us. It is only Jesus. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.